Now, Paul, in this letter to Timothy, he gets tonight, or this morning, and he speaks of Timothy and our heritage. What those who are in Christ ought to expect of this life. What our destiny is, what our heritage in Christ is. Speaks of a heritage of suffering. A heritage of persecution. Because Christ has suffered for us, we are to expect and embrace a heritage of su- a heritage of persecution. But we have such a resistance to this idea. Persecution and, something, and suffering is something that we avoid. We dismiss it. We don't think that this is part of the reality of our culture. Now this letter to Timothy is written in like 67 A.D., This is shortly after this massive fire burns throughout the city of Rome. And the emperor, Nero, he's looking for somebody to blame this fire on. So he's like, hey, Christian, scapegoat. So he blames it on the Christians, and a persecution breaks out in the ancient world. And so Paul is writing this to Timothy to say, listen, don't run from this. Embrace what is yours, what is coming to you. What he gives Timothy in light of this heritage are three promises. A promise of persecution, a promise of purpose, and a promise of provision. A promise to expect persecution and for why to embrace that persecution. A promise of purpose and a promise of provision. And we're going to follow those promises this morning. Let's look first to this promise of persecution. So Paul begins our passage by listing all of these things that Timothy has followed him in. His teaching, his conduct, his purpose and passion, his faith, his love, and his steadfastness. And then, he comes to one final thing that can now expect as part of his heritage in Christ. Suffering and persecution. You have followed me, Timothy, in all of these things. Now, follow me in the persecutions and the sufferings that had me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Now this this city name, Lystra, as soon as it rings in Timothy's ears, his mind is going to flash back to when he's a young boy or a youth living in that city, living in Lystra. Acts 18 tells us what happened. Paul had come to town, come to Lystra, and he's preaching the gospel. And he sees a man with crippled feet, and he heals this man. And for whatever reason, the Jews get really mad at Paul's gospel proclamation healing. So they form a mob. And they, by force, take Paul out of the city, and they begin to hurl stones at him. They only stop and leave him when Paul is left in a puddle of his blood not moving. The disciples gather around him, and they pray for him, and amazingly, Paul gets up and walks back into the city. Timothy, as a young boy, middle school, high school student, saw this happen. And Paul speaks of suffering and persecution at Lystra. This is where Timothy goes. And then, after calling this back to his mind, this dramatic scene of persecution, Paul says this terrifying promise. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, persecution is a very tricky topic for American Christians. We hear stories of the persecution and the suffering that is happening all around the world to our brothers and sisters. This morning, or whatever time zone will be morning for our brothers throughout the world, 215 million 
Christians wake up right now to very real, very present suffering and persecution. All for claiming Christ as king. Economic exclusion. Family rejecting them. Friends rejecting them. Physical assaults. Beatings. Imprisonment. This is the reality that 215 million Christians wake up to right now. And we hear these stories of persecution. And then we look around at our lives. And honestly, we just we can't relate. We pray for the church and the rest of the world, but we kind of skip over or move quickly past this promise of persecution that Paul makes. Or, we're all too familiar with American Christians claiming persecution as part of the culture wars. Every time a Christian sign or symbol gets removed from a public space, Christians start calling out that we are persecuted. There's this narrative that keeps getting repeated in this land that Christians in America are under attack. But honestly, as members of the largest faith group in America, Christians are relatively well protected. We're more often accommodated than persecuted. And so these claims of persecution, this promise of persecution, we move past or it rings numb. We view this promise that Paul makes as if it has some big asterisk on the end of it, as if it's qualification so it doesn't apply to us. But this shows that we don't understand what persecution actually is. At its root, at its core, John Stott says that persecution is simply the clash between two reconcilable value systems. Persecution is the clash that happens when the values of Christ conflict with the values of the culture you live in. And Jesus says that because of this clash, you will be reviled. People will speak evil of you and you may face physical persecution. There's a promise that Paul is echoing of Christ himself. And it's easy to see elsewhere. A Christian right now in Niger raised fist for claiming Christ Jesus as Lord. We, American Christians, face the raised eyebrow. We fear the phased, the raised eyebrow. The clash of values that we face is very subtle, it's very insidious, and so we can miss it. And we think that this promise of Paul doesn't apply to us. But it does. The values of Christ are radically different from every culture of the world. His kingdom is not of this world. And so it is going to clash necessarily with whatever culture you're in. Think about our culture. Our culture values power and social standing and yet Christ says, you, my followers, you seek the lowest seat. Jesus says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. A person who has no interest in climbing social ladders is going to raise some eyebrows, might lose some friends, might be passed for promotions. Our culture values the pursuit of money, accumulating wealth. Christ says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You cannot serve but money. A person who lives small and gives the rest away is going to raise some eyebrows. Maybe your parents are going to question your financial stability. Our culture values top acceptance of all ways of life, and yet Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is an exclusive claim that our culture rails against. And it is going to raise eyebrows and criticisms. You will be seen as narrow. Our culture values self-fulfillment. You chase your dreams. You build your dream life. Christ says, 
deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A self-denial, what Christians call the cruciform life, that is not popular. That is not going to win friends and influence people. Friends, if you follow Christ, if you take his value seriously, it's going to clash with your culture. I don't care how Christian it claims to be. It will necessarily clash. Even if that clash is subtle and you only receive the raised eyebrow and exclusion. Recognize it for what it is. Embrace living in a way that leads to persecution. And if it's not there, if there's no resistance to any sphere of your life, then something is amiss. Christ has told us, be in the world, but don't be of the world. Now, if you're not in the world at all, then who is there to raise an eyebrow to your life? If you're not in the world, who is there to question the ways that you do things? And if you are too of the world, if your way of life is indistinguishable from the world around you, what is there to raise an eyebrow to? Follow Christ and take up your cross. And persecution, even though subtle and hard to pinpoint, it is yours. This is a promise that Paul makes, echoing Christ Jesus himself. Follow Christ, take up your cross. This heritage of suffering and persecution is yours. Now, if you're honest, you hear that, I hear that, and we ask the question of why in the world would I? Why would I want persecution? Why would I want suffering? Why would this promise not be something to avoid? So let's move from this promise of persecution to looking at the promise of purpose. Notice in verse 12, Paul does not say, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Over and over again throughout all his writings, Paul speaks of in Christ. It's a little tagline. That's like every five words for Paul. It's everywhere. It's at the core of everything for Paul, in Christ. Being united to Christ. And if it's something that's this important to Paul, we probably better understand what it's all about. So what does this mean, to be in Christ, to be united to Christ? Very simply, this means that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. If you claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he is in you and you are in him. You are in Christ. This means that everything that Christ has done, you are united to. It is yours already, his perfect righteousness and holiness. That is yours. His death and sent from God the Father for sin, that is yours already. His eternal home of glory, that is yours. You are united to this already. You are in him. God views you as he views his own son, for you are in Christ. And he is in you. His spirit lives inside you and is ripping out these old structures of self-reliance and self-obsession, of idolatry and sin and fear and doubt. The spirit is in you, working in you to rip these things out and form you to the image of Christ. You are united to Christ and he is in you. You are in him. Now, this is a mystery. And the thing about a mystery is as soon as you start to explain it, it's kind of like a joke. It loses its power, right? So I'm going to try and offer an illustration anyway that I used to go at TCPC. So that you are in Christ is a lot like my son, Bear, who loves to wear my T-shirts. Let me explain. So I ran uh, this race in Louisville a couple months back, and my son wanted to run that race. So he talks about it like every day. So I run the race, finish it, and he's obsessed. He thought he, run the he ran the race, but obviously he didn't because he's two and it's 26 miles, so that's not happening. But he thought he ran the race. So I said, buddy, 
this shirt is yours. You know, like those race t-shirts? I said, buddy, this shirt's So Bear puts this shirt on. Yes, our kid's name is Bear. He puts this shirt on. And you can picture, I mean, like the kid's this tall. This shirt, I'm 6'3", it's dragging on the ground around him. The sleeves come down past his hands. Obsessed with it. He won't take it off. He's walking around our neighborhood in it. I know my neighbors are like, buddy, why can't you buy your kid some clothes that fit him? But he won't take it off. He sleeps in it, everything. It doesn't fit him, but he's clothed in it. He's wearing that thing. He's clothed absolutely in it. He just now gets to grow up into what's already his. And here's the point. That's what we have in Christ. All of these wonderful things that Christ has done, those are yours all. If you are in him, that is yours, objectively fixed. That's not going anywhere. This life now is you growing up into that t-shirt. That is what union in Christ is. That is why Paul emphasizes it so much. This is yours, you're becoming. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are to grow up into the mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. We are to grow up in every way into Christ. Y'all, in Christ, objectively fixed. His righteousness, His glory, His perfection, that is yours. You're growing up into that now. Enjoying subjectively, experientially, all that is already yours in Christ. Part of being united to Christ is being united to the man who we saw described in Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We are united to the suffering servant. Pain and suffering is something that happened to Jesus once. Not just something that happened on a weekly occasion. Pain and suffering marked his entire life. His whole life is marked by the cross that he was walking to, by his everyday laying down of his life to serve and have you. Christ's suffering was all for you, so that you would be in him and he would be in you. Paul says elsewhere, for his sake I have suffered the loss of everything and count it all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is the purpose of embracing and persecution. As we join Christ in suffering persecution, we are growing up into him. And in growing up into him, as we share in persecution, as we share in suffering, Paul promises you will the power of the resurrection the resurre- what drew Jesus up out of that grave? You get to taste that. These aren't, these aren't flowery words. This is a reality to live into. There is a very real and serious sense that as you suffer for the sake of the gospel, even if that suffering is just a little bit of disdain and a raised eyebrow, you are growing up into Christ. You are experiencing his power in a unique way that you otherwise know. And you get to enjoy more of Christ which that's what this is all about, enjoying more of who he is. All that is already yours, you're growing into that t-shirt. So friend, do you lack the light in your life in Christ? Are all truths that you hear on a week-in, week-out basis, do they feel dry and numb and like, I don't see how that relates to tomorrow? Maybe this is because we now need to embrace a life that leads to persecution. Not to earn something from the Father. It's already all yours. You're in Christ. But this is the way that you grow up into him. Embracing a life of righteousness that leads to suffering. As Paul says, when we do this, we will taste the power of the resurrection. This is the purpose. 
that Paul promises. Now, we've seen that persecution is promised for all who are in Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, that is a promise made to you. It's a terrible promise, but it's a promise made to you. Let's turn at the promise of provision. Closing with a set of verses you have probably heard quoted before. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the great promise of provision for those who are going to suffer. I'm not sure how y'all think of the Bible, but if I'm honest, I usually think of the Bible as containing a bunch of info about God and what he's done and how we're now supposed to live. It's a bunch of information. But Paul says it's so much more than this. He says that this thing, if I had my Bible, I'd hold it up, that the Bible is breathed out by God. In the Old Testament, to say that God does something and to say that God speaks are one and the same thing. God says, let there be light. And what happens? Light, shot, light shows up. He doesn't say, hey, I want there to be light, and he goes over and creates some cosmic light switch. He says, let there be light, boom, light's right there. God's acting and his speaking are one and the same thing. Psalm 29 says this, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedar. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The voice of the Lord accomplishes these things. To say that something happens by the word of the Lord and to say that God did it is one and the same thing. His word and action is one and the same. And in the tabernacle in the temple of the Old Testament where God would meet with his people, you've got all of his rules, all of his law written on these stones. And that is where God met with his people. That's at the center of the whole thing. There is a very real sense, very real sense, that God's word is an extension of his very being, of, him very, of his very self. God chooses, for some reason, to be present to his people through words. That's crazy. He chooses to be present to his people through words. And Paul says that all scripture... That whole collection of poetry and wisdom and letters, that is God-breathed. That is word. Which means that the God of the universe is personally present in this book. He is personally present in this book. He is acting on us. Every single time you open it up, meditate, read it, hear truths about it, he is acting on you. You are encountering God, and there is nothing that we need more to embrace a life of persecution, to be able to live through a life that leads to persecution, than encountering God, regularly soaking in the presence of God. Right before the world shut down back in uh, 2020, Jess and I were in the with our son Bear. Uh, he had had a febrile seizure, which is where his temperature spikes up real high and his body goes rigid in shock and stuff that you medical people might know, I don't understand. But I raced to meet them at the hospital and I found my little boy with a tube strapped to him and nothing was as it should be. I sat down on the hospital bed and just put Bear on my chest and he was barely aware of my presence. Like he, he was out. But I remember scratching, there was no response. But I started speaking to him, telling him how much I loved him. And that's when I felt a response. He started to sink down into me. I could feel his hands moving. I was present to my boy in those terrifying moments by my word. My words 
were not just information passing from me to bear. My words were an extension of my being. God is present to us in a mysterious and very real way through his word. And so we desperately sit and soak in his presence. For Paul to point Timothy to this heritage of suffering that is guaranteed, and then to follow it up with a call to remember scripture, to soak in it, is a call to go and sit with your father, who is present in his word. Why? Because God wants you. He has given everything in order to rescue you from sin and death and call you his own, so that you would one day delight in his presence continually and perfectly. This is what you were made for, horizon that we are all headed for if you are in Christ. Continual, perpetual, all of life soaking presence of God, perfectly enjoyed. And we get to taste that presence through his word, even and especially in the midst of persecution. It teaches us, corrects us, trains us, says that it makes us complete, which that's a whole sermon on itself. Don't neglect this mystery. Don't neglect the presence in his word. It's the great provision for suffering to be strengthened and comforted by the presence of the God who became a suffering servant so that you would be his and he would be yours forever. Paul Timothy, that suffering is his heritage. This is a truly sobering and scary promise. And yet we have seen that that promise proves beautiful when we see that God has a great purpose for our suffering persecution, you get to enjoy more of the Christ you're united to. And he doesn't leave you alone. He's given you himself through his word, through his presence is offered right there. So I hope we see that this is our heritage. Paul calls Timothy to, and it's ours as well. Let's embrace it. Lord, we love you, and we want to love you more. Lord, we need your presence Lord, you have promised that all things that happen to those who love you are for their good and your glory. And Lord, our greatest good is that we would be in your presence.